This episode is sponsored by The Path, the coach-guided membership designed to help you make alcohol small and relevant in your life by removing your true desire to grab that next drink. Our science-based, compassion-led program allows you not only to shift your behavior and your relationship around alcohol, but more importantly, uncover and reprogram your subconscious conditioning and neural connections that have been keeping you stuck for years. With daily live breakthrough coaching, an intimate and supportive community, regular peer-to-peer connection calls, and a complete vault of resources, this is where your path to total freedom and effortless enjoyment of your new way of life begins. Join us at NakedMindPath.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I'm here with Layla. How are you? Hi, Annie. I'm so glad to see you. Oh, it's so good to see you too. Um, so why don't you take us sort of back to the beginning in your story and your journey with alcohol? Where did it all start for you? Okay, well, I'll tell you uh, just a little bit about my background. I was born in Austin, Texas in, in 1951, and um, uh, I had just a really pretty idyllic childhood. Uh, my family was close. I had a little sister, and um, I had such a secure, nurturing family. And my parents had a lot of extended family. So I felt a sense of community and belonging. So uh, the years up until I was 12 years old were wonderful. When I was 12, my mom was taking my, my sister to choir practice and she was in a one car accident. They were hit by a train and my mm-hmm. little sister was killed. It was mm-hmm. September 1963, and I was just starting seventh grade, which was the first year of middle school back then, and uh, my mother was hurt. She was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, but my sister was killed, and my dad told me that my mom was going to be okay physically, but maybe psychologically, we had to be really, really careful not to cause any trouble and in that kind of thing. Well, I, I didn't even know what psychological, he had to tell me what psychologically meant, but, you know, I just remember feeling like I need to take care of my mom, you know, that sense of responsibility, the way we handled the loss of my sister. She was 10. I was 12 was separate. It was like, she was there and then she wasn't there and life went on almost we didn't talk about her. It was my dad worked all the time. My mother just, you know, this happened. She was a real strong personality and you just go on and we didn't talk about it. So, um, you know, I, I really, I just, I I didn't know this was a big deal. I just, that's what I did. I just pushed down my feelings and tried to go on. But uh, the, the reality of, of struggling with the meaning of life (laughs) at 12 years old, and someone you love is there and then they're not, all of that was pretty heavy for a 12 year old. And so I had an inner life of seeking and searching and an outer life of trying to act like a a young girl. So anyway, I started drinking when I was probably a junior in high school. And I remember the first time I had a beer was after a football game. I didn't even really care about having a beer. Somebody just gave it to me didn't taste good and but it felt kind of good like a release that's how it was I just had one beer but in in high school we lived in Austin and there was the University of Texas and I dated 
I went out with guys that were in college. So uh, by the time I was a senior, I was going to fraternity parties. And so drinking had really become a part of social life, you know, Coke and bourbon, things like that and beer. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like something we did during the day, but at night when we went out, alcohol was always involved. So anyway, it was just what we all did. Then I went to college, I went to the University of Texas, and um, it was, I just had the best time. I, I partied all the time. I went out all the time. Drinking was what we did every single night. And um, it was just fun. I mean, it it became just a habit of what you did every night when you went out on dates or even with girlfriends, you'd go out and have a glass of wine or a bottle of wine. And uh, it it seemed normal and it became just a part of my life of, of belonging, of connection, of fun, of carefree, totally carefree living. And um, it just was what it was. I didn't think of it as a problem. I, I loved it. I loved it. So um, anyway, I graduated from college and then I came to Houston to work. And I got a job as a receptionist at a bank. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, this is the perfect job for me because I can do this job and I can go out every night and party. And that's what I did. I went out every single night. I'm sure there wasn't a night I didn't have uh, wine, you know, when I went out on dates. And and it didn't matter if my mind was fuzzy the next day because I, all I had to do was tell direct people where to go at the bank. Anyway, but I, I didn't really feel like it was a problem because that's what we were all doing. I felt like everybody else was doing that too. Okay, so I got married in my early 20s and drinking was a, a large part of our relationship because we just continued the same same habits of after work, going out to dinner and having a bottle of wine and a drink before and that kind of thing. I really did not drink during the day. Uh, that was something I didn't do. For one thing, it would put me to sleep. So that was just, I was never a person that, that got up and drank in the morning or in the afternoon at all. By my 30s, my, the end of my 20s, I started thinking, you know, I really like this a lot. I mean, I'm feeling like this is kind of a little bit of a problem. And I remember my 30th birthday party, I had a, a, a tennis tournament the whole time. And then we went to eat Mexican food and have margaritas. The whole time I was thinking, when is this going to be over so we can go have margaritas? You know, it was like the focus was not the tennis and being there, it was like, I can't wait till we're finished with this and we can go drink margaritas, you know. But also that birthday to me was the um, was the hardest birthday because I felt at 30 that I need to start being a grown-up, that I couldn't uh, get away with being so irresponsible. And, and so that was kind of a wake-up call for me. All, and and so at that time, also, Walt and I were trying to have kids, which we we tried for a long time. It took us seven years to have our first child. For me, I've always wondered if the death of my sister had something to do with that because of the 
awareness of the tremendous responsibility of being responsible for another human being's life, you know? Mm. So I was 30, I guess I was 33 when I had my first child and I was 36 when I had my last, I had three children. I had no problem not drinking when I was pregnant. Uh, I didn't feel like drinking. I was so happy to be pregnant. And it was like, there's something so much more important than that, uh, having this, this baby. And so being a mom was like the most important thing in my life. I wanted to be the best mom and I wanted to be a good example for my children. And so I really uh, became very controlled about drinking, choosing who we went out with. Uh, still, drinking was powerful because I was very controlled about what we did, who we did it with, and that kind of thing. But like when we went on trips, adult trips, we would just really let our hair down and drink a lot and that kind of thing. I mean, I think it's what a lot of people do. I don't think it was anything out of the ordinary, but there was a struggle inside of me. What I know now was major cognitive dissonance, just this struggle and this preoccupation. Whether I had too much to drink or not, there was that struggle of not wanting to drink and wanting to drink. Okay, so in my 40s, I became, I, I really was, got on a very deep spiritual journey. I enrolled in this spiritual direction institute it was like one day a week for three years it was awesome it was just an amazing course and I loved it and at that time I really came to grips with in my soul that I was getting the spirits mixed up I I I really recognize that there there is this motivating spirit of creation that created everything the energy that created the cosmos created our bodies created this incredible earth that we live on and that I was putting alcohol this little spirit that was important to motivate me to have fun what I thought was connection to be belong but then I didn't feel good about myself and this was very kind of depressing. It was a downer. It was just a downer. So I decided during that time, it was probably the second year in this school I was going to, I decided I'm going to go to AA. I'm just going to AA because I don't want my children to grow up seeing me drink and I want to be present for them. So I did. I just got it up and I went to AA. And it was really a challenge, Annie, because it was hard to find First of all, a group that I fit in, I didn't feel like I was an alcoholic. I had to, if I was in there, I had to say I was an alcoholic. That felt really crummy to me because it was like shame. And I thought, this isn't me. This is what I think of as an alcoholic. It's not me. So that felt yucky. At the same time, if I was going to go to AA, I had to say that. And there was some groups I was in, I just didn't fit. Finally, I found a group. It was men and women, and it was a big group that I loved. And it, it went for people that had, you know, hit such rock bottoms, their lives were just ruined. 
to there were people in there that were wine connoisseurs and collectors and you know were coming to grips that with their drinking obsession and um so i had there were a few people that i really connected with that i saw outside of that group the vast majority i didn't see out of that group but uh you know the times that i would say i felt like i could say in there i really don't feel like i'm an alcoholic and they would not chastise me. They would always say, Leela, it's just, you just don't, if you don't want to drink, that's enough to be here. That's mm -hmm. the only group I felt that with, with, that sense of acceptance. So one thing I want to say about AA, the things that were positive were the 12 steps. Of course, that came from the Oxford group. AA did not create the 12 steps. It's from the Oxford group. They adopted the 12 steps and it is a spiritual practice for anyone, anywhere. They're awesome. The second thing that was positive was the group that I did find. There was a sense of community that was powerful. It was one of the most powerful spiritual experiences those years that I have ever experienced. It was awesome. The downside of AA was shame that I had to go to AA to not drink because it was too miserable to not try not to drink. All my friends drank. I only knew one person that didn't drink. And the shame and I guess that was it, the shame and hiding myself, feeling like I had two lives, that nobody outside my AA life knew I went to AA except for my husband. You know, so there was this kind of sense of shame and not being able to, you know, be authentic about that, kind of hiding myself. And that felt crummy. So anyway, I I was I went there all through my kids growing up from the time they were in elementary school until my son graduated from college. My daughter was in college and my other daughter was in boarding school. So none of them were at home. Okay, another thing I wanted to I'll go back to college just to say, this is kind of interesting. When I was in college, my senior year, as a senior, you can get inducted into this thing called Board Martyrs, which is a was a really cool club to belong to. And it was a drinking club. So I just wanted to put that out there because that was kind of my mindset. That was really cool to get tapped to be in Board Martyrs. And I was in Board Martyrs. So anyway, so going back to uh, when my kids were grown and out of the house, then I started drinking again, just, just at dinner. And it was a totally different experience. I had, it was like my heart kind of was heavy when I would drink because I felt like I'd been, I think thinking back about it now, it's because I've been through all I had been through. It did not do what it did for me before. So as far as drinking too much and, and going down the river and hitting the rocks, that was not the problem. It was a disappointment in myself. But the, the power of wanting to belong, and when I went out to dinner, to not be the odd man out was huge. So I started drinking again. So, it was then, 
social almost. You just really it was social. It was social, and it, but that sense of belonging. But I didn't feel good about myself because what I put into not drinking, and now I was drinking, and there was this mismatch, still this turmoil. Anyway, I also told a friend of mine who was very involved in this church we went to that I was going to AA. She encouraged me. This was when my kids were teenagers and still at home. She said, oh, Leela, you ought to tell your story at the church about this. It'll make such a difference to people's lives. Annie, I, I thought about it. I seriously thought about it. But in the end, I decided not to. And the reason I decided not to is because I did not feel I was an alcoholic. I did not want to get up there and say, I go to AA because I didn't want the pictures of what that meant to come into people's minds and for them to define me in something I wasn't. And I didn't know what that fallout would be to my children. So I didn't. And uh, I think that's kind of interesting because I felt, I felt, I, I didn't just say no, I really thought about it, but the stigma is what kept me from speaking out my truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's really significant and important. So now going back to my children being grown, my son at 33 years old died of alcohol, died because of alcohol, which obviously has been the most traumatic disastrous. I mean, I just don't want to start crying thing in my life. So um, anyway, he died. And at that time, you know, I was drinking socially. And uh, oh my gosh, I just, so a month after my son passed away, I was introduced to this spiritual guide, this teacher who I followed. And about a year later, she gave a class that I took. And uh, she told us about this wellness seminar she was going to be in. And she, so I went to the wellness seminar, seminar. And the first person I hear, I feel like this is such a God thing, really. First person I hear is Carolina. I can't pronounce Carolina's last name, but anyway, she is a, this naked mind coach with Annie and she told her story. Mm -hmm. I'm in my late sixties at this point and I hear Carolina tell her story. This is the first time in my life that I had heard someone speak my experience, my truth. And it was I mean, such a connection. It was so powerful. It was really a profound experience, Annie. And I called Carolina and I started working with her as a coach and doing all her programs. And I mean, I just, I, I feel like uh, what's going on right now in this alcohol-free movement is an evolutionary. This is the time. People are ready to hear this. And um, so anyway, as I worked with Carolina, Carolina was like, oh, my gosh, you've got to know Annie Gray. She, and so she sent me your book and uh, I read your book and I did so much work in uncovering old beliefs and false beliefs and 
really looking at my true experience with alcohol and the wasted headspace in there, whether I was actually drinking or not drinking. Anyway, so so it just changed my life. And um, I feel like for me that, you know, the definition, definition of spirit is an animating energy, an animating energy. And I feel from my experience is the small spirits such as alcohol, drugs, or a lot of things, too much, too much of anything, way too much of anything, but gets in the way, blocks the light, blocks the energy, blocks the animating force that connects to our essence for why we're here, who we are as unique beings put on this earth for a reason. And so uh, what I have found through your work, which I really just can't commend you enough for your how bright you are and for being able to express all this complicated stuff so well and put it out there. But I feel like it is, uh, it has the potential to change the world truly because it is about authenticity. It's about learning about neuroscience and taking responsibility for ourselves, for our own knowledge and for managing our thoughts and our emotions and our actions and our behaviors. That's pretty much my story, Annie. Uh, I feel like I've sped through that. <laughs> That's great. So, um, so you did then with Carolina stop drinking altogether? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I have no desire to drink whatsoever. It is, I feel totally empowered with my choices because I'm very clear. I saw so clearly it was, yes, the, you know, drinking habitually over so many years. Yeah, there were these roadways in my brain. So it had become a habit and it took me a while to let go, you know, to quit. And so that, so I didn't have the cravings anymore. But the truth of the matter is what I was seeking was connection. And I think it all, all started, the reason I talked about my sister's accident and how we handled that as a family is the aloneness of that, you know? And the messages, like my parents were social drinkers. Uh, they had, when my dad got home, they would have, two cocktails, a cocktail or two, and, and didn't drink during dinner, but they were very social. They had parties all the time. There was always drinking. That's what I saw growing up. I mean, that's just the reality. And I think that's the reality of today most of the time too. So every celebration, parties, you know, that's what people do. So it was, and I was alone. I had, I had no aunt, both my parents were only children. So I had no aunts, no uncles, no cousins, no one. When my sister died, I had no one to, to talk about it. I just pushed it down. And so there was a deep longing. I mean, all of this I've discovered through a lot of therapy, through a lot of self-work, you know, but I see what once I started drinking combined with the false beliefs that I had that alcohol was the answer for connection, belonging, 
letting your hair down relief. That combined, um, you know, with the neuroscience of what alcohol does, I mean, that it was those longings that were misplaced in alcohol. It wasn't alcohol itself. Now, I do, I do think people can go so far down the river that they hit the rocks and it's, it's a different story and it's not good and it's not bad. It's just different. In the AA terms, I would say I was very high bottom. I guess that's what you would call it. I think there are a lot of people out there that are, I mean, I know them because I work with them, you know, that are very high bottom and struggling. And they don't want to go to AA because they don't want to have to put that label down because that's not who they are. Yeah, so, I'm sure you've heard of the rat part sort of experiment where they put rats with two water bottles. One was laced with, I think, heroin or cocaine, and one was just water in a cage. And 100% of the rats would choose the heroin or cocaine, the addictive water, the drug-laced water, and keep choosing it to the point of overdose. And pretty much all of them would kill themselves eventually. But then somebody saw this experiment and they were like, wait, these animals are social animals and you're, they're in a cage by themselves. And so they proposed another experiment where they actually put the same two water bottles, one laced with you know highly addictive drugs, one laced with, or one just water. And in that other cage, they had other rats and they had activities and they had sort of like a park-like environment with community. And uh, there were still a few who would choose the, um, the heroin water, but almost nobody overdosed. And most, most of them didn't. Most of them would try it once or twice, and then they just wouldn't do it. And, um, and it is interesting because so much of like Dr. Gabor Mate's work has said, you know, if, if we're drinking for trauma and we don't heal the trauma, we'll like, we'll switch it out for something else, right? But then there's also people who are drinking and they're not necessarily drinking or they've healed their trauma and they continue to drink because it's just such a societal norm and it it is two different two different kind of paths but the results you know are someone feeling very very stuck exactly it's absolutely that feeling of feeling stuck and um life is such a gift and those years i did not feel free i felt stuck and bound and now I feel free, I'm in charge. And I know why, I know, I know my why. And um, I just want to support anyone and everyone on this journey that wants to do the work to find out what their why is and then have the courage to, to, to use the tools to make some steps little by little to find freedom because, um, you know, I just believe we're all here for a purpose, for each of our own unique purposes. And I I also know I've learned so much. I love the neuroscience that I've learned and am even learning more now in the work that I'm doing. And, you know, children or young people, their frontal cortex is not fully developed until they're 25 years old. Wow. 25 years old. So 
you know, in today's world, kids are drinking earlier and earlier. This is very, very dangerous. And I think for parents to learn the neurobiology gives them so much power as parents to, to protect their children, to be able to talk to their children about these things and to great to agree i'm your frontal cortex until you get to be a certain age period i mean it, it empowers parents yeah so true um let me ask you a few questions first of all when you were sort of you know drinking to socialize and feeling like oh it's just so much easier than having to be the odd man out how do you navigate that now it doesn't bother me. I feel so empowered when we go out to dinner. Uh, I, I'm just always the first one to order a drink. And I say, I'd like to order uh, some, I would like sparkling water. I want it in a wine glass. I'm very, very for it. I put it in a wine glass. I want a little bit of cranberry juice and some lime in yeah. a wine glass. If they bring it in an iced tea glass, I send it back very confidently. Oh, I love that. I feel very good about it no I, it's so awesome because I love my life I love where I am in my life and it's empowered it, because AA is about oh uh, some people might have a deviant gene or you know it, it's all like something's wrong with you well we're all we're all human beings and all of us have a little something wrong with us you know we all do and uh, I just think the more we all own up to that, the more other people will own up to it too. And it won't be about those people over there that have a problem because we all have problems. And so I feel very empowered, Annie, uh, because of the knowledge I have. I love that. I literally remember being 20 some years old, living in New York City, being asked to, you know, show up at happy hour and asked why I wasn't. And, and I was like, well, I just don't drink. And being, you know, my boss explained like, well, this is important for your career. This is where you can network. This is where, you know, we talk about stuff outside of the office. If you want to kind of get ahead and visit with the higher ups from out of town, this is where it's going to happen. And I was like, okay, cool. But there was no part of my brain at that point at 26 years old, living in Manhattan that thought for one second that alcohol was addictive. It was not in my awareness based on everything I'd, I'd sort of learned from society. I thought that alcohol was only addictive to a certain percentage of the population and people that could ultimately become alcoholics, but not everybody most people were not, and alcohol wasn't generally addictive. It wasn't generally a problem. That was truly what I believed. And I think it's unfortunately still truly what a lot of people believe. I, be I think you're exactly right. I mean, I, I believe the same thing. It was such a part of, of, of the social socializing that I grew up in, that I saw all of my life, all of my life. It was just a part of, of what we do. And that's what you do when you relax and, and you go to parties and you're socializing, you know? So I thought I was, thought it was black and white. There were alcoholics that were really, you know, hardcore. 
And then there were people that could drink and, you know, there wasn't any of this in between that I see is, is truly the vast majority. And, and, you know, I've come across uh, a number of people that talk to me now, you know, they're very successful people that are struggling. They struggle with it, but there's a stigma and, you know, people, I just, I just want to do whatever I can to break this stigma uh, because I think it is so destructive and people are dying because of it, especially, well, I can't say just young people, but I think it's young people and young adults. But I think this movement that you are a major leader in is, is catching on like wildfire. And so I think there's a lot of hope. And I think Annie, to tell you the truth, I feel like it's so much bigger than just not drinking, because I think when you really become like, you, you know, you're asleep, then you become aware, then you become awake, and then you become alive. This process is self-work. And so it, it's bringing your oneself to another person. So human dynamics change. And so that's why I said it has potential to change the world because then we communicate from a place of centeredness in who we are. You know, I think it is so powerful. And I can tell even with my grandchildren, my granddaughter that's 10 years old, you know, I think they're so, so much more exposed to things. So they're more enlightened at 10 years old way more than I was and more than you were, you know, it's just interesting how generations build on generations. So there's, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of darkness and there's a lot of light. And uh, so I have, I have hope. I have a lot of hope for what's going on because, uh, you know, this naked mind gives us a platform to speak out and, uh, and be so, full of life and really love, love. That's how I feel, full of gratitude. I love what you say about the kids. You know, like I think about you, myself, and when I learned certain truths about life that I create my own happiness and I create my own experience and it isn't circumstances outside of me that are to blame. It is my reaction is always within my control and things like that, that I learned in my late thirties, early forties. And I look at my kids and they're learning this stuff like at 11 and 12 and 14. And I'm just thinking, wow, like what about their kids? Like, how is it going to be? Um, because even my kids were raised at least in their very young years, two of the three of mine by a mom who was drinking too much, who was very unaware, who was kind of, you know, not really awake to the reality of even my own sort of worth. And, and then it transitioned. And so they're having kind of the second half of their childhood with this radically different person, but then they're going to go on to have kids. And I mean, I feel like they're pretty awake, like even as teenagers, <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is amazing how we do just every generation make such incredible strides forward. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's interesting because it, the, your children have you as their 
leader and role model. And then their little lives will touch other little lives. Uh, there are a lot of parents out there that totally are not aware, like, like my little granddaughter two years ago. So she was eight years old, went to a birthday party her best friend's birthday party. And when I went to pick her up, she was like, oh, guess what, Lolly? They gave us champagne, but it didn't have alcohol in it. And I was just like, you know, what a horrible message, you know, giving the eight-year-olds champagne, like saying, this is how you celebrate. So there's a lot of work to do. And that's why I'm really convicted about speaking out in platforms to bring this awareness, because I know parents don't want to give those messages. They're not awake. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So um, let's switch gears. And will you tell me, um, because you've been just such a incredible and pleasant and thought-provoking and sharpening student out of this Naked Mind Institute, I would love to hear how that journey was for you. How did it come about that you decided to become a certified coach? Well, I mean, like I said, when I, I had gone to this, this class with a spiritual teacher and she, then I went to the wellness and I heard Carolina and it was like this, oh my gosh, there is somebody else here. This person speaks my language. And Carolina is even younger than my children, you know, I mean, like, but it was just so awesome, like to see that connection. And uh, so then I did the work with her and I read your book and I was like, I, this is, I've been looking for my people for so much of my life, Annie, and I found my people, people on the same wavelength, people with the same feelings, and they, they, the same kind of ways of thinking and experiencing relationship, how they, this abusive relationship with alcohol, whether at the times they were drinking too much, at the times they weren't drinking too much, it was still an abusive relationship, and, um, so that's why I wanted to do uh, the coaching because, because I wanted to just soak myself in everything that you had to teach. And, um, and it was a challenge because like I never took typing and the computer was really a challenge for me, but I did it. I did it with God's help. I got a great computer person. I think she's my angel that really helped me get it all together. Yeah. So I love it. And, and I'm very involved here in Houston with some things going on that I'm very excited about. There's a lot of life giving energy to what I'm involved in. So it's a process, unfolding process, Annie. I love that. So let me ask you um, two final questions. Uh, first of all, where can people find you and find out more about you if they want to get involved or be coached? Okay. I have a website. It's called thecardinalself.com. Awesome. That's where they can find me. Great. So great. And then what if you were going to go back in time and sort of talk to, I actually want to ask you specifically about talking to the version of yourself that was sober, but really didn't feel like she belonged and you would tell her about what life is like now, what would you say? I would say, because this is the way I feel, that, that life is such a gift 
and that you have a very special part to play. And it's only yours, your little unique part. And that it is our responsibility to take care of that unique part. And I would teach myself as a child about neuroscience. I would be really upfront about what actually happens to the brain and how when we put things in our bodies and it stimulates the brain in ways that, as you say, hijacks your pleasure centers and hijacks, then you build walls up so that you're walled off from who you really are. Mm -hmm. So I would say, listen to what you love that you're doing. Follow that. Follow that. And always know, I, I, I think to just know that we are valuable mm -hmm. and I believe in God, whatever religion there is, I believe there is a creator, God, and there is a rhythm and there is a flow. And to know, no matter who you are, God loves me in my essence. And that's what I would say. And that's what I would try and nurture that sense of you're okay. And when you fall, it's okay. Everything is okay because you learn not to, not to put anything that will wall you off from yourself, from yourself. I love that. It makes me think that the thing that would change the world is if all of us human beings felt worthy and felt loved and felt valuable. And it's such an obvious thing because how much differently would we show up? How much less would we need substances? You know, just like in the rat park experiment. And yet we look for that continuously sort of outside of ourselves, but really inside of ourselves is the conduit to the whatever, the force, the creator, God, um, whatever, the it's it's through ourself and getting to know because the most intimate way we can know the creation is by knowing ourself <laughs> like we will never know a human being or anything as well as we have the opportunity to know ourselves and the more we can know about ourselves the more we can know about you know um the thing the spirit the force god that created us and i think that so that ability to feel worthy and to feel loved, like we can do it for ourselves. We just have to learn how. And, you know, maybe someday soon it will be taught in school and it won't be looked down upon as something that's quote selfish or, but it will really be realized and recognized that unless we are looking to find, give ourselves that sense of worth and value um, because we didn't create ourselves, then we we're, we're going to stay stuck and be looking for ways to medicate. It's so true, Annie. It's so true. I feel the uh, learning to have self-compassion and the realization that no matter what happens, and I mean 
what, even the loss of our son, or, you know, I think of the Holocaust. I mean, horrible things happen. And there can be purpose. There can be, there can be person. It doesn't make the, the pain go away. And, it, you know, but there's, there can be purpose of self-compassion and self-understanding and a broadening of our lives. I, I Also, another thing I really wanted to say is I, I do believe that every choice we make in life, and we're human, so I certainly don't make expanding choices all the time. <laughs> so, but, but I think the awareness of um, when I choose choices that give expansion, I feel that I am moving in the direction of my true self, of my essence, of my destiny. When I choose make choices that are constrictive and mm -hmm. contract, that's a message. I feel like body, mind, spirit is so important. We can listen to our bodies and what is clutches our heart. We need to listen to that. And what expands us, we need to listen to that, you know, and uh, the more we can listen to those things and not judge it, not judge it. Um, this journey is one of, of profound self-awareness. And it is something for me that is a daily journey. I realize so acutely that I will never get there every day. I do my best. and. That's all any of us can do. And that's what I would tell that little girl or little boy. Do your best and, and, and then leave the results. And you're going to fall down. And when you do, be thankful for the lessons you can learn from it. Mm -hmm. There are lessons to be learned. And that's what life is. And it is short. It is a short time we are here on earth. So um, anyway. Thank you, Annie. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. It was beautifully told. You have awesome presence as a speaker, and uh, I just really appreciate it. Oh, well, I appreciate you so much, Annie. It's just a blessing to get to do this. I really feel honored and so happy to get to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have you tried the alcohol experiment? Okay, if not, drop everything and go to thisnakedmind.com forward slash experiment. This free 30-day challenge is designed to interrupt your patterns and put you back in touch with the best version of you. You remember it was that version of you that's living your most joyful life, the version that doesn't need alcohol to relax or to have a good time and is having more fun than ever. And again, this is a totally free challenge that will change everything for you. So learn more and join me 100% free at thisnakedmind.com forward slash experiment. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.